It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Bo, you know what I've realized? What's that? That the human condition is, is that we jump around to whatever we think the coolest thing is. A few weeks ago, we did a show on the lottery because everybody, the whole nation had a lottery fever because the, the jackpot had gotten to some ungodly amount. I can't even remember. That's how right. bad, you know, your memory is on these type of things and how fast they fade into your memory. But what is the thing everybody's talking about? And you can't go on the news or watch TV without them talking about right now. Oh, it's Facebook and the uh, the initial public offering of Facebook shares. And, and the thing is, so we, Bo comes in earlier this week and he goes, Brian, I got our podcast topic for this week. And I said, what is it? He goes, let's talk about IPOs. He says, you've been doing investing long enough that you can probably give us some feedback on how things are out there in the real world on how Facebook is. So we, we said, that's a great idea. So and, this, and we've been fielding questions this week, too. So it's not completely out of nowhere. Yeah, we've had clients call about it. It, which kind of cracks me up a little bit, but it's, it's here nor there as, as Bo and I make eye contact and kind of roll our eyes a little bit. But um, that shows really the power of the media is that they've got everybody so just hopped up on this thing about Facebook going public that I felt like, you know what, I've never done a show explaining the ins and outs of in, uh, initial public offerings. That's when companies decide it's time to cash in. It's time for the owners to get their money out of this company. I, f- I figured we'd talk about it. Let's cut through the hype and figure out where the reality is on how these things do historically, as well as what you might expect if you wanted to use some of your hard-earned money for trying to get into Facebook or whatever you know, initial offering that you wanted to get into. So let me give you the intro. By the way, this is The Money Guy Show. That's money-guy.com. You can also write the show that you can write me directly at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. You can also contact Bo. He's at B-O at money-guy.com. I think I do that on purpose. <laughs> you know, I could tell you I do it because a lot of people spell Bo as B-E-A-U, or, right, you know, something right. like that. But B-O sound, makes me think of body odor every time I hear it. So well, it, I certainly it, it appreciate entertains that. Me. Thank you so much. Um, so if you want to go check out the website, we put out our show notes. We even put out links to some of the things that we're going to be talking about today. But let's get into initial public offerings. And, and as I'm getting into this, I want to also pick on the financial media. Because as show prep, I came here, I was like, how hard is it going to be to come in here and pull up the historical data on IPOs and how they do? And you can find data, but if you go and you do a Google search, and then after you do your Google search, click on the News tab. You know how you can do web, you can do images, or you can do news. If you do news and see things in you know most recent order through you know the last few days, you're going to see everybody is talking about is all these articles on which mutual funds should you look at if you want to get into your Facebook? What's your best chances of getting into the Facebook IPO? I was like, holy cow, everybody in the world is going to be in this, wants to be in this Facebook IPO. It is a media darling right now on how much they've hyped this thing. And in the back of my mind, I can't help but think about every bubble, everything that I've ever seen in investing, when you have everybody so hopped up on something typically doesn't work out that well. I even think about what was the cool guy just a few years ago? MySpace. Mm-hmm. MySpace, everybody had to be there. So much so that I think Rupert Murdoch in the Fox group bought it for several hundred million dollars. And I, I guarantee if, if you ask them, what do you think about MySpace? They're like, 
they, they probably start cussing under their breath and, you know, start thinking of the other things that they could have used that money for, the opportunity cost that, that MySpace brought them. And, you know, Facebook, I could be wrong because I, I will tell you in full disclosure, I had a client call me in 2004 and say, Brian, this Google, I'd like to own some of this Google. And I, and I, and I kind of talked to him about how we're long-term investors. We don't get sidetracked into these, these sidebar type investments um, no matter how interesting they are. And, and usually that works out tremendously well, but Google has been the exception. I want you guys to know that Google had a, a, a tremendous in, initial public offering and um, it, it was very successful and it's continued to be very successful as they've branched out, you know, running a, the, the biggest competition to the iPhones out there. So that they have done some incredible things, but I'm going to get into in a little bit what the difference is between Google and Facebook. But let me first kind of back up here and talk about initial public offerings. Now, if you go to your trusted source of Wikipedia, who doesn't use Wikipedia? It talks about what an IPO is or a stock market launch. It's really the first sale of a stock by a company to the public. In other words, it is the founder or whoever is running the company and owns the shares, they're getting paid. That's, that's really what's going on. Um, it says many companies that undertake an IPO also request the assistance of an investment banking firm acting in the capacity of an underwriter to help them correctly assess the value of their shares. There's another party that's getting paid. I mean, that's really what you have to look at is the people who really make out well in these IPOs is the founder and whoever owns the shares, the venture capitalists that might have been angel investors that came in and helped this company as they were starting out, and then, of course, the sea of attorneys, investment bankers, and accountants that helped them go through the underwriting process to bring it to market. And there's all things, that, all kind of things that go in there. I, I do like how Wikipedia had the positives. Let's talk about what the benefits are for a company to do an IPO. It bolsters and diversifies their equity base. Mm -hmm. So now instead of just having one person who's driving the boat, we've got a, you know, we've got a, probably a board of shareholders who are helping make the decision and we don't have just one single player being as powerful as they used to be. It enables cheaper access to capitals. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is much better than going and borrowing this money. Um, you know, it, it's, it, but they can go ahead and just flush this money out. And think about it, like a company like Facebook that's got so much hype going for it right now where it's a media darling. They're probably going to get a tremendous premium above and beyond what they could borrow or even what they're really worth right. if you look at it from a price-to-earnings type ratio to, in a traditional valuation standpoint. They also get exposure, prestige, and public image. Lord knows. I mean, Bo, you, you had a great point. When we were doing some research this morning, you, you had said there was an article, and you probably don't have the stats because I'm putting you on the spot about this, but there was a, a very witty financial columnist that wrote an article that says, I can guarantee that Facebook will not have the explosive growth that it has had over the last few years. And what it did was it basically, from an empirical standpoint, went through how many people use Facebook right now what the total world population is, and it really, it could not actually reach the numbers it has done over the last four years. It, it was something to the tune of if, uh, you know, if Facebook grows over the next four years like it did over the past four years, then four years from now there will be 9.7 billion Facebook users. And so the article was essentially saying, yeah, that's not going to happen because there aren't that many folks on earth. It's, and by the way, we're going to close out this show today with the graveyard of past IPOs and some of the things I remember when I was investing and working for a large firm that we did actually get into IPOs for our clients. 
And I can tell you some of the things I remember as these companies were considered very viable choices back then. And now that we have the, the power of looking through a rear view mirror, we can say, wow, that was a bunch of smoke and mirrors and there was really nothing to that company. Um, and by the way, you know, I guess full disclosure also, I have nothing against Facebook other than I think my wife spends way too much time on it. I mean, it is one of those things, uh, you know, if you decide that this is going to be the next coming, more power to you. I just want to make sure I equipped you with the right tools so that you can stretch every dollar that's in your back pocket and so you don't get caught up in the hype that, that, that I feel like is kind of the machine is pushing on us right now. Um, the, continuing on what the benefits are, attracting and retaining better management employees through liquid equity participation. Hey, you throw out a lot of stock options. Mm -hmm. It can help out. Now, I will tell you, some of that has been muted, especially after the dot-com bubble burst. I, I don't think you see as much of the stock options driving things as they did in the past. Facilitating acquisitions. Definitely, if you get very flush, Facebook is going to be able to go out and buy all these other type of businesses like Instagram or whatever, all these other crazy things that right. Mr. Zuckerberg feels like are you know, the next up-and-coming things. Um, creating multiple financing opportunities, equity, convertible debt, cheaper bank loans. I mean, right. obviously, if you have this much liquidity, if you did want additional options in the future and you have a very flush balance sheet with cash and other things, probably does make it easier to go have other choices. Let's talk about, of course, if there's positives, there's got to be the other side of the T column, which is disadvantages. And there's, here we go, significant legal accounting and marketing costs. Right. Like I said, those guys are getting paid who are showing up in the coat and ties and suits. Um, I think, you know, the, the broker commission sometimes is 8%. So you can imagine when they do the IPOs, that is very, very lucrative. Ongoing requirement to disclose financial and business information. That obviously, you got the government in your back pocket once you go public because there's a lot of SEC regulations and other things that you have to abide by. Meaningful time, effort, and attention required of senior management. Because you do have compliance things, you're going to have to pay attention to those, you know, dotting your I's and crossing your T's on everything. And then risk that required funding will not be raised. That's the popularity question. Right. You know, if there have been IPOs that get really close, meaning they paid for all these underwriting fees, they paid all these people that showed up in the suits. You get a week before and you realize, oh, no, we're not as pretty or we're not as popular as we thought we were. We just wasted a lot of money. So it is a little bit of a gamble as these companies decide to go public. And then, of course, you have to put out a lot of public information that could be very useful to your competitors. That's, that's probably the last of the downturns of things that when companies are deciding whether or not they're going public. So... I decided, since I was having a hard time finding a lot of analytical data from the financial media on what the real story is on IPOs, besides just the hype of, hey, you got to get in this Facebook thing, because that's what all the other cool kids are doing, I did some Google searching, and guess what I found? I found a working paper that's actually written by a PhD student. He did an incredible analysis, data-driven analysis, on what is the success and the, the kind of the the life cycle of initial public offerings when they come to market. And he used data from 1985 all the way to 2002. I'm going to go ahead and give you his name. It was Dr. Zachary Smith, and um, it's, it's titled An Empirical Investigation of Initial Public Offering Performance. So this is how good the Internet is, is that I can go find a Ph.D. analysis of what's going on out there in the stock market. You don't get this just anywhere, guys. You see how deep we go with this. We get into uh, a really nerdy doctor's 
probably white research paper, white paper or thesis paper, you know, of, of that he used to, to help, per, per, you know, push his career even further. And this is what he came up with. My research project illustrates that when the IPOs are trading under their lockup provision, the returns are generally positive. Of course, discounting the significantly negative movements lasting through trading day two through seven, presumably a reaction to the initial positive movement prior to the issuance and on the initial day of public trading. So let me put this in common terms. By the way, this is a big report. I'm breaking it down into two paragraphs. So I'm not probably doing, you know, Dr. Smith any favors, but I, I, I'm giving you the gist, the cliff notes. I'm, I'm, if, you know, if you overslept and you just, you know, you showed up at class, I'm giving you kind of the, the cliff notes so you could hopefully pass the pop quiz without having to actually read the, the research report. What he's basically saying is that when these stocks go public, there is a pop. And, you know, th- there's a lot of discussion about what this pop is caused by. Is it because the underwriters undervalued it, meaning that they didn't put the price at what it really was worth, you know, because they wanted to be able to make more money off of it when they sell it to all their institutional as well as retail investors. So that could be a cause of it. But there is this initial pop that typically happens on day one, the day that it actually goes public. Days two through seven, it kind of back backtracks a little bit. But then after two through seven, it, it stabilizes during that lockup provision period. And Bo, you did some research. What, what's a typical lockup provision? Yeah, so typical lockups, at least historically, have been about 180 days, so you know, roughly six months, where what they say is any initial owners, uh, the executives who owned it, venture capitalists, anyone who had a piece of these IP share, IPO shares can't liquidate their shares until after this lockup period has passed. So the thought being that the shares that Mr. Zuckerberg decides to continue to hold he actually can't liquidate within six months of the initial public offering, assuming that's the way that Facebook's IPO is written. Yeah, and we haven't read their offering paperwork, so we're not, you know, we can't make any attestations of what that is. Now, I want to continue on with Dr. Smith's research report. He goes, however, so this, we got through page, you know, day seven. So we've got day one, it spikes up. Two to seven, it kind of backtracks a little bit as some people sell out. But then it basically stays pretty stable until we get to the end of the lockup provision. And it says, however, as the IPOs approach the expiration of the lockup period, the performance generated by the IPOs evaluated in this analysis is resoundingly negative. Yeah, I mean, and, and it goes on. I'm, I'm flipping over a few more pages. Like I said, turning 25 pages into two paragraphs. It said, this trend is undeniable and significant. After IPOs reach their lockup expiration, their like performance of approximately 0.05% points, a loss of points in value each day for approximately one year. So this trend continues. It, and that's what, it, it, let me see if he puts it in this last paragraph or last sentence that I'm reading. The general conclusion that the researcher has reached in this analysis is as follows. When it comes to participating in the IPO market, buyer beware. First and foremost, the process of issuance is not fair. There are not fair opportunities for economic profit. And so it, it goes on to, to all these other analytical data, but it looks like for the first three to five years of the stock is out there, it's almost, it ties into what I call like the efficient market analysis. If you're looking at things, you know how you have reversion to the mean? And, and if you can, if you're one of the people that's fortunate enough to get in on the IPO, yeah, you might have a big bump in the beginning. But then, you know, after you get through that lockout period, it really has an extended period of underperformance to, to the point that when you look at it on a long-term basis, 
it kind of reverts to the mean and actually underperforms even its industry peers. Because I did find I did find one financial article. Let me see if I can flip through here and make sure I get to the right place. Where it talks about, and now this article was written back in last year in June of 2011. This is right after we had the IPOs of LinkedIn. We had um, Pandora. There was Zynga. All these things were kind of, this is before Facebook. You know, we got into this Facebook frenzy that we're in right now. But this article that was put out there by Business Insider, it states the following. It said, the exuberance associated with an IPO is not new. The study linked in item one finds that IPO stocks have averaged a 19% gain on the first day of trading going back to the 1960s. From 1980 to 2009, the average first day gain for a sample of 7,354 stocks is 18%. So there's that pop that I was talking about from that previous research report. But listen to this. There are many theories surrounding, and I've already kind of hit on this, so I'm, I'm totally doubling up on myself. There are many theories surrounding why IPOs exhibit such a huge run-up on their first day. Consistent price gains like these would suggest that IPOs are consistently underpriced when they are brought to market. Regardless of the mechanism, however, it is little wonder then investors clamor for stocks that have gone public. The prospect of an average gain of 18% in a single day will attract many speculators. But what about IPOs on their long-term performance? Mm-hmm. Here's the big reveal. Poor long-term performance. It says, the average three-year return, according to this research by another doctor, Dr. Jay Ritter, so this is a man who's made his life in doing studies of numbers. He's just as dorky as us. This was published in June of 2011. He came out with a research report from the University of Florida. We'll forgive him for that. It says, the average three-year return of IPO stocks lagged the average three-year returns of similar non-IPO stocks by 7.2%. Wow. So it goes on to say IPOs are not for everyone. This type of high-risk return trading activity is available in a range of other ways, notably by buying options. For those investors who gamble in buying IPO stocks, I simply hope they are aware of the historical long-term lackluster performance of IPOs and take their position from a fully informed standpoint, not by listening to the media hype. I really couldn't say it any better. No, because that sounds exactly on. That is, that's exactly the feeling I had after I was you know, reading all these research reports. I was just like, wow. I mean, the media is really doing a number on the average investor right now, getting everybody hyped up about you know, Facebook. And the right. thing is, they won't do the follow-up stories. You might see one or two, but let's take a year from now, if Facebook has come and gone and it starts to come down, nobody's going to bring up these type of things right. again. You know, and the thing that, because I, I hinted at the fact that I wanted to talk briefly about the difference between Facebook and Google. I have an article, I'm flipping through here trying to find it. Listen to this, because I, I found another article that this was titled, I think this article came out actually in January of 2012. So this hype all the way, goes all the way back to January, because this was an article titled, Before You Get Excited About the Facebook IPO. Now, remember, this article came out in January. It was on MSN. No, it was on moneymorning.com. And um, they, they closed out and they said, for those of you who are comparing this to Google, this is kind of what they said. Google's advertising targets, through its search engine at least, are often looked to be sold when they go to the site, whereas Facebook users don't want their chatting, gaming, posting time consumed by invasive or even passive salesmanship. It goes on to say, sure, Facebook has a lot of people trolling through its sites, 
but the important question is how do they monetize that traffic? They face the same old dilemma salesmen have faced since the beginning of time. How do you convert the tire kickers into buyers? And I, I thought that was a great point in the fact that if you look at I, you know, another social media site that has now been public for over a year is LinkedIn. And LinkedIn has been all over the place with its stock trading. But right now, it's trading at, a, I believe, right around $110 a share. But if you go pull the, 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 the information, the summary financial information on LinkedIn, you'll see that its price-to-earnings ratio is 756. Now, to give you guys some perspective on that, a good PE, a price-to-earnings ratio, is considered to be less than 15. So a price-to-earnings ratio of 756 means that LinkedIn better get busy making some money or the price has got to come down. You know, somewhere they're going to meet in the middle. Either it's going to make a lot more money in the future, or that stock price is going to come back more into rational terms. And I worry the same thing could happen to Facebook, is because Google generates a lot of profit. Because it does. You know, you think about all that. There's, there's people who are consultants to help you get great Google listings. You know, they, they get you listed up a little bit higher. There's also, they get paid on the links. They get paid on, you know, I don't think they really make money off Android, but they do make money off the platforms of, of the more access that provides them. What is Facebook going to do to generate that tremendous level of revenue? And I just don't know if I see it. I, I was actually, I watched an interview the other day with one of my favorite. I, I love to read his commentary. He's actually an institutional investment uh, manager out, out, in, um, out on the west side of the country. And he was doing a comparison. Somebody said, hey, what do you think about Facebook? And he was saying, let me tell you why Facebook is not Google. Right now, Google has a market cap right at $200 billion. So net worth of the company, $200 billion. Last year, Google had $40 billion in revenue, and they have $40 billion in cash right now. So $200 billion market cap, $40 billion in revenue, $40 billion in cash. A lot of people are estimating that Facebook's IPO is going to value the company right at $100 billion. So half of the market value of Google. Last year, Facebook had $4 billion in revenue. Ooh, it's 10 he, times he, less. He didn't speak to the cash, but they do not have $40 billion in cash. So think about that. Their revenue has to go up 10 times for them to justify the same sort of market value that Google has without having that $40 billion of cash. That's just, to me, that seems overvalued. I don't know, I don't know where the value that Facebook is offering is coming from. Yep, so I guess to the, the close it out, before we get into the graveyard of past failures, is you know if you love Facebook and you're doing this because you just want to own a piece of something, I mean, I, I see people all the time they like to buy Disney shares because they love going to Disney with their family and it's something fun to give as a gift. You know, I guess monetarily wise, there is something there, but they're looking at more for the sentimental or coolness factor that they own some Disney shares. If you're buying Facebook because you love the product, you love the service, and you want to be a part of it to show your support, I, I guess that's one thing. But if you're looking at this as a long-term investment, buyer beware. And without giving investment advice, if you are thinking about buying it uh, for the sentimental value, I might wait and just see what it does in the secondary yeah. market. Yeah. You know, I might not try to get one of these oversubscribed IPO shares. And even then, I might wait past Wait the 180 days. Yeah. Wait yeah. the 180 days to see what happens after the lockout provision expires. Because you don't want to be holding it if Mr. Zuckerberg decides he really wants to divest out. That's gonna, you're going to have some trouble with that. So he's probably doing a little, little dance at night being pretty excited about that. He's bought him a few extra hoodies. <laughs> so um, let's go through the graveyard here. Um, it starts off, this was an article, this actually came out in, oh gosh, oh, 2009, August of 2009. So this is a few years old. 
But it's still, I think, because it all ties back to really kind of the stuff that went on in the 2000s because the dot-com bubble was really the king of IPOs. IPOs kind of have been playing on the back burner until recently, and you have to go back a decade earlier when we had the dot-com bubble. So, so this is even before before the Zynga, before Pandora, before Groupon, even before all those. Yeah, this is the, the previous time when IPOs kind of became on the front page news articles. It says the most anticipated day in the life of a company is its liquidation event. When the founders and or investors cash out, typically a liquidation event takes the form of a buyout or what is known as an initial public offering. So the first one in the graveyard, Vonage. You know, you know Vonage. They're still around. Vonage has um, the ability where they, you know, you can basically make phone calls and use the internet right. and IP to, to, to replace your traditional phone service. Uh, Vonage had 2006's worst first trading day and announced that the firm may never be profitable. Now, that's not actually true. I went and pulled up the data because I thought it'd be interesting to see where they are today. Right. They're actually trading at $1.77 a share. <laughs> so, penny stock because anything under $2 is not considered really a, 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 tr a, real, a real, I guess, grown-up stock. Um, it has a price-to-earnings ratio. I couldn't believe this because it actually has earnings per share of $1.67. For sure, so it has a price-to-earnings ratio of one. Oh, wow. I was kind of shocked. So Vonage, you know, for being such a dog at the IPO, it has never, I guess, the coolness factor has never come back for it to the fact that it can't even get a multiple on its earnings right. anymore. Remember what I just told you is that we got LinkedIn that has a price-to-earnings ratio of 757, if you round it up to the, the nearest one, compared to Vonage that is at one. <laughs> so, so it's just interesting. The next one I thought was, because I remember this one, and this is a stat, WebVan. Anybody who was around in the late 90s, early 2000s, when all the dot-com stuff and everything was going down, this was a web, an internet grocery store. You could go on their website, buy your groceries, and then it would be delivered to your house. They had these fleet of trucks that would drive and deliver the, the groceries to your house. And if you spent over a certain amount, it was even pretty much the, the, the shipping was free. So this thing was incredible. I remember thinking how crazy this was when WebVan came out is because their market cap, when all this buzz was going on, was bigger than all the big grocery stores if you added them up and combined them. Like, you know, if you added the Kroger's, the Publix's, um, and those type of things, they, they added the, the three biggest you know, grocery store chains, all their assets and their market cap, and it didn't even total what this web company was. It didn't even have profitability. So WebBan, it talks about rose to prominence as an idea that was simply ahead of its time, home delivery of groceries. While the concept is now profitably offered by Stop and Shop's Peapod and similar services in the late 1990s, shoppers were not receptive enough to the idea to justify the $1 billion infrastructure WebVan built around it. So when the, Burge, you know, when the growing company raised $375 million in its IPO, it was only a matter of time before WebVan was outstripped by its own frantic growth. I mean, I, for the first five years after this company went bankrupt and went, you know, or got, or went away as a failed tech business, you used to see, I could tell the, by the vans, you could see these old web vans, you know, that they'd ripped the logo off of, spray painted the, you know, a different color. But you could tell what that van <laughs> used to be. It was a refrigerated truck that was used for these grocery store deliveries. E-Toys. This is another one. And maybe, maybe this isn't as entertaining for some of you other guys out there. But if you were investing 10 to 15 years ago, you know, when all this dot-com stuff was going down, this is a walk down memory lane for me. Because I remember all these companies. I remember their, their you know, their commercials that were on TV and stuff. But E-Toys... Like so many other ill-fated dot-coms, eToys was an idea without demand. Online toy sales. Now, obviously, 
online toy sales do well. I mean, right. I, I buy Christmas presents from Amazon. Right. I even have done Toys R Us, and you know, and a lot of these places even have where you order on the internet, you can go pick up at the store. But despite the lack of true market, the company managed through a sheer buzz and word of mouth to generate enough interest for a massive $166 million IPO in May of 1999. I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot of money. Uh-huh. Um, it's actually the only reason it's still, the website's functional, is because um, KB Toys scooped up the, the domain name and the access in bankruptcy. Huh. So that's the only reason that's even around. But $166 million was raised for them, and they really never made money. The next one, Pets.com. Pets.com was the most beloved of all the 90s.coms. Between the talking sock puppet and the hilarious Super Bowl commercials. Now, remember, Super Bowl commercials cost like a million bucks. I mean, even more than that now. But back then, I think they were probably a little less than a million, probably right around the millions. But they had this you know, Super Bowl commercial that was incredible, you know, so it was great for an ambitious young company. And they had an $82.5 million February 2000 IPO. Well, the company just, it only generated in 1999, $619,000 of revenue. That's not much, guys. That didn't even a million dollars. That didn't pay for a lot of stuff. That didn't pay for a lot. So you can imagine that business didn't work out. Another one I thought was interesting that was listed in here on the graveyard of bad IPOs, Hertz. You know, Hertz is a rental car company. We've all heard of Hertz. Right. You know, you'd think, hey, Hertz. That's you know, a name I recognize. I, I, I recognize. Right. I, I'd consider doing that. Well, Hertz did horrendous when it went public. This is what was so funny to me. Remember, this article was written in 2009, right? August of 2009, going through this article that we found. Well, um, the investors simply would not knowingly fork over their cash for a debt-ridden company, no matter how well-known or his- historically strong it is. It was no surprise then that Hertz stock barely rose above its starting price of $15 per share on day one of trading and fared still poor for- thereafter. So I went for giggles and said, what's Hertz trading at today? Because remember, this is August of 2009 when this article was written right. almost three years ago. You know what Hertz is trading at? What? Fifteen twenty. Nice. So if you're the type of investor, I, didn't, I should have looked to see if they're even paying a dividend. Um, but it hurts by itself, not a great appreciation, appreciating stock, obviously, because it's, um, it, is, it is not really going anywhere. If it went, its IBO came out at 15, and as of you know, just a few minutes ago, it's at 15, 20. What you find, Bo? It does not look like they're currently paying a dividend. So you, have, you gave them money. I guess you didn't lose. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> What's the 52-week trading range? 52-week uh, range from $7.80 all the way up to $17. Oh, so we're at the top end of Hertz right now. So that, that actually even speaks more about it. But that's kind of the graveyard of some of the things. So, you know, we're not trying to pick on IPO. You know, if Mark wants to come hang out with us, you know, if he hasn't been to Georgia in a while, we're here for you, Mark. Come hang out. We'll even don't, you know, I've got a hoodie somewhere around the office here. That I'd be willing to put on, you know, if we wanted to hang out. And when you do get, if you do get like some $10 billion payout, we would be more than happy to help you with some of your financial planning needs. But I will tell you, we're probably going to sit on the sidelines for a little bit on this. Um, You know, and and truthfully, I had a call from a client, you know, and I gave him the whole discussion on long-term investments. He goes, well, do this for me, Brian. If you get that itch that you're going to do this with your own money, call me up and I'll get in there with you. And and I'm, I'm going to tell you guys something about my own investments now is in the past, I've probably taken 5 to 7% of my money and done individual stocks. I mean, Bo knows in the past. Not, I, not all at once. It's kind of over time. Yeah, over time. is Because what I do is I watch the news. 
a stock gets beat up and I see a stock that I think has good things going on for it. You know, a good example is like Apple. When I bought Apple individually, it was, it was back in, you know, the, the whole crisis, financial crisis. The stock was trading in the, the, the low 90s. Um, I knew uh, just from looking at the financial statements of the company, it had $27 a share of just straight up cash. So of that $94, 27 of it was cash. So I was like, wow, this is, this is a great opportunity to buy this. So I did buy some Apple, rode that up for most of this appreciation we've had here over the last few years. It's, um, it's been kind of the, something I was proud of. I bought, you know, GE, uh, you know, when it got beat up, there were several, you know, I won't name all the individual, but they were all household names, good quality blue chip stocks. But Bo and I had a discussion. You know, we manage money for a living. And since I was already doing 95% of my money like I treat my clients' money, I went ahead and just got out of all my individual issues, and I treat my money no different than anybody else's. So I shared that with the client, and I also let him in on this little carrot of information I've realized over the last five to six months that I haven't owned any individual stocks. I don't really pay attention to the market as much as I used to. I mean, I still read tremendously. I think you guys know, to, you listen to the show, you can tell we research a lot about the financial markets. I am keeping up with what's going on, but I don't find myself going to Yahoo Finance and hitting that refresh button to see what's going on with the individual stock issues like I did. And, and I don't want to say I sleep better at night, but I do find myself not being ridden with concern over how things are going. So I, didn't, you know, I shared that with the client that I said, look, the way I work my finances now is I've realized I got a good thing going. I've got a financial plan in place. I make a decent living. The hard, biggest thing I have to worry about is doing something so stupid that I screw it all up. And I tell that to a lot of people out there because a lot of you guys who listen to the show are in the same situation. You're blessed that you, you've made a lot of hard decisions. Maybe when you're younger, you were a great student. So you started you know, doing the right thing. You started saving and investing at a young age. And you're on the, the, the nice and easy path that if you just stay the course, you'll be fine. And you'll, you'll be completely financially independent in no time. You'll have all your debt paid off. But there's always everybody tries to get rich really quick. And that's, what, that's the, the plans that take you down a sidebar that can break you. And that's what I just encourage you. You know, it's kind of I went a little, you know, as I've had people tell me I'm more like a geometry book with all the different, you know, ways we go in, in tangents and other different places. But I do tell you that because I think it's important information to know that, you know, just put together a plan. And then I've avoided the individual issues just because I think it's easier to come up with a good diversified plan. Bow up, and then we're going to close this thing out. No, I think it's great, guys. Hope, hopefully, you guys, uh, now, now you have some information you could take, and next time you're having a conversation with someone, they bring it up. Hopefully, we've given you some data that you can kind of spurt it off and look like an expert. Great point, because that's, that's what we're here for. We're here to add some knowledge for the cocktail hour. You know, so you go to the Christmas party, you go to the cocktail party, you're the guy that they're going to say, God, he knows what he's doing. And that's what we want to make sure we help you stretch that back pocket as much as possible. We want your money to go 2 to 5% better than everybody else's. And then we want in a few years, you become financially independent. And all your friends look at you and go, God, that guy's so lucky. And they don't know that you actually, you're not lucky. You just did the hard work and you made the plan and you made it look easy. That's right. But there was a lot more that went into it. Thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. I'm your host, Brian Preston. We'll talk to you in about two weeks. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. And Brian Preston is a partner with Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management. 
Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.